You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Rebecca grew up evangelical, graduated from a conservative Bible college, was a worship musician, and an overseas missionary. Today, she shares with us her story of how she came to embrace a Christian vision of the ultimate salvation of all. Welcome, Rebecca, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Hi. Thank you well, for inviting me. Well, you're most welcome. Well, let's just start out, and why don't you tell us about your early Christian experience? Um, well, I grew up a believer um, in a believing home, um, and from a young age, I w- I understood what I could at my age and, and really embraced it. Um, my parents are, uh, they were saved in their twenties, both of them, I believe, or somewhere close to their like college age or a little bit later in their twenties. Um, so it was a kind of an adult, you know, decision for them. Like it was, it wasn't something they were just handed necessarily. Um, Mm -hmm. both came from somewhat hard family lives and, um, yeah, really embraced it later in life. Um, after going through some hard things. And um, so me and my sister, we were raised um, kind of just mainstream evangelical. We went to a non-denominational church growing up. And um, my memories of that were very good. I mean, looking back, I see a few things that as an adult, you understand what was going on and you're like, oh, (laughs) maybe, you know, just the way that some things were handled, like some Christian or professing Christian teenagers in our church when I was a little kid, the way that it was handled when one of them got pregnant or, um, you know, there were things that later looking back, I was like, I don't know if I agree with that, but, you know, on the whole, really, really solid people in my life. Um, And there wasn't like, I'm, you know, not somebody who heard hellfire and brimstone preaching who just Mm -hmm. really hated it and went the other direction. It wasn't at all like that. Um, taught the truth of God's word as they saw it. Um, eternal conscious torment in hell is, you know, is the predominant view. That was the view of the church. And that wasn't something that I dwelt on very often. It wasn't, it was something that was addressed, but, you know, not emphasized or used mm-hmm. to scare people. Well, they didn't, in um, other words, they didn't, they didn't really like celebrate that and no, beat people over the head with it, but they kind all. of, but they kind of recognized, well, you know, this is something that, that, that we have to deal with and take yes. seriously. Yeah, to my knowledge, I didn't know anybody who openly held any other kind of view. Um, like the closest I ever heard as a kid or noticed any kind of dissent from like popular opinion was one family who believed in their their both parents, I think, had their PhDs, were very, very intelligent, thoughtful people. And I remember hearing that they believed in evolution, um, but weren't dogmatic about it. And I think we're just teaching their kids to think for themselves. But I just mm-hmm. found that to be interesting. And that was that was a I think showed some, I didn't hear it as a derogatory thing, I don't think. Um, So it was kind of just, I think it was a good example of being able to maybe dissent from a common view, but it was definitely not the norm. So Mm -hmm. to my mind, you know, everything was just like this, this is what you believe. Um, And then I went off to a college in the end that was very much the same, um, very mainstream evangelical. Um, not a lot of diversity, at least that was spoken about openly among what the professors would teach. Some were 
kind of seen as little outliers. And um, I think one or two of those actually left a couple years after, and it may have had to do with that, um, their beliefs being different. But it had a, you know, if you had to, if you wanted to be a professor there, um, if you wanted to be a student there, you had to sign to an official, you know, doctrinal statement, as would, you know, maybe be expected. And I, I can't for sure recall if there was a view of hell in that doctrinal statement, there probably was, because I know they went as specific as you had to be a cessationist, technically, with the spiritual gifts. I believe that was mm-hmm. part of the professor's doctrinal statement, which I was very surprised when I learned that. But then when it came down to it, I don't think every single professor was a hardcore cessationist. So, um, so yeah, that was my mostly, it was just evangelical kind of all the way through. That was my so early the, life. So you... Um... And I think you you said that you got a double major in um, in music and music the Bible, and yeah music and biblical studies. And what was that like? It was really good. I really enjoyed it. I'm very glad I didn't change my major. Music ended up being what I do as a job now. I thought about it just because I have always been very um into the idea of going into missions overseas. Um, And so I just kept thinking, oh, maybe I want to do something more like ministry, theologically related, Um, and ended up staying in music. And and that was a good decision. I really enjoyed it. I loved the music department there. Um, We had a great time going on tour with choirs, and we went to Israel and Italy and two of my years there. And so some really formative experiences. Um, And yeah, studying music further you know, really helped what I do now. I teach classical piano um, full-time. So yeah, my experience there was great. Lots of Bible classes, lots of really good information. I remember as a freshman, uh, somebody saying, you're probably going to hear this. You really need to hear this right now. You're probably going to hear it again. Don't let the study of the Bible um, make it a textbook for you. Like it still has to be something that spiritually feeds you and it doesn't just become a dry like textbook. And I guess what you don't really know going into Bible college is that that like you can't help that like you might be able to keep it mm-hmm. kind of something that you do in a you know quote unquote t- quiet time as well but you do kind of get puffed up with lots of knowledge um and not that knowledge is bad but there's a lot of knowledge dump in school without mm-hmm. as much of a wisdom dump, you know, like there's so much focus on the academics. Yeah. When I went to, uh, my seminary experience was a little different than yours. The seminary I went to bright divinity school at, um, uh, TCU in Fort worth. And, um, they had kind of the, uh, they had a little bit of the opposite approach. They said, um, we're going to expose you to all different opinions and ideas about the Mm -hmm. Bible. The professors here, will have different opinions among themselves and you will not be graded on the opinion that you, the opinion that you come to, you'll be graded on, on, um, you know, how much you've put into, you know, how much thought you've put into your work. And you just need to understand that your, your, your journey with the Bible and and your spiritual journey is going to be one that's going to go on through your, your, your whole life. So expect some changes along the way. And we're, we're not here to tell you what to think, but we're, we're here to teach you maybe how to think theologically and biblically and just kind of get started yeah. on your, on your journey. 
but it sounds like in your situation, there was sort of a, a little more of like a little bit of more of an insular approach. Like we're we're happy that we have pretty much found what we think are the core truth that don't need to be challenged. We just need to learn what they are and kind of embrace them. Yeah, yeah, that 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 probably is fair. And I think also, I don't have any problem with um, institutions having a viewpoint because you mm-hmm. you know what it is usually. I mean, you can read the whole doctrinal statement. You can talk to as many people as you want. You can read the student life guide or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the rules of the campus, the rules of the school, the views of the school. You can know all that before you go in. So I, in school, I was always very annoyed when people complained a lot because I'm like, you can leave <laughs> at any point. Like, if you don't want to be here, if you want, if you don't like the rules, if you don't like the theology, I'm like, don't complain about it because you're still choosing. Nobody's keeping you here. So, okay, so I kind of so have that I'm, attitude about it. But Well, what I'm picking up about you is yeah. you're not some kind of essentially rebellious person that is, I don't know, looking to cause trouble or looking to <laughs> no. get, looking oh, no. to, you know, looking to get outside of that. Like, I'm happy to accept, you know, the given boundaries and I kind of feel good, mm-hmm. um, you know, not causing trouble. I'm just, oh, yeah. I just, I just mm-hmm. want to do the right thing. Yeah. And looking back, I might've really benefited or I don't know. I was also very young, you know, it might've been very mm-hmm. confusing or disorienting too early in a way. I don't, for me to go somewhere like bright. Um, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, I wish maybe that it, the, the, maybe one of the core values was teaching us how to think. And they would say that, and there are definitely professors that, that feels like they're lean or that they're not dying on these hills of dogma and they really just want their students to love God and to love each other. And you know what I mean? So there's Mm -hmm. a a variety of intentions there and, you know, different attitudes among the professors. I know that, but, and then the school as a whole, but it's like very, but it is very, it toes an evangelical line and it was reiterated. I thought it was kind of just an exaggeration, but it's probably kind of true, you know, and you have a lot of um, donors to mm-hmm. the school that um, are mostly evangelical, you're going to lose a lot of people if you don't tow a certain line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily disingenuous because if the leadership of the school really believes anyway with evangelicals belief, well, that's fine. It's not disingenuous to then support that and tow that line and, you know, keep donors happy per se. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Um, but yeah, yeah, looking back, I just realized how much of one view I kind of got and was affirmed by peers as well. But you don't know what you don't know. And I also thought that that was all fine. It all checked out with scripture. And I still think a lot of it does. And a lot of it's a totally, you know, tenable view. So I don't regret that at all. But I'm, but yeah, it just took a long time to, to see that there was, there were more ways to see a lot of these issues and that it wasn't as clear cut Mm -hmm. as I was led to believe. All right, so you now you you get to the end of your uh, time at the Bible College and finishing up your music degree, and um, you have been in a pretty insular world with just with a lot of structure and around a lot of people that are your friends, you know. And then you graduate and you're kind of uh, cast out into the big world, so to speak. What was that like? Um. 
That was kind of slow too, like a slow transition. Well, it felt very fast after graduation. No one tells you how depressed you can get very quickly after you graduate from um, an undergrad degree where you're living on campus and there's friends and homework and things to do and your schedule laid out for you 24-7 and then boom, it is gone the day of graduation. I wish more people talked about that. So people who are listening that are in a degree, just I'm not trying to (laughs) be negative or, you know, Mm -hmm. say that that's how it will go, but um I wish there was more transitionary kind of like help um, as you're leaving somewhere like that. You just have built-in community and it mm-hmm. was super fun. And so I roomed with two girls I didn't know well from school. We were very different. They were both from Europe. I'm not. <laughs> um, we were very different people, but they were very mm-hmm. kind people. So I really didn't see them and they were very busy. Um, so I had a tough year that year. I had some very good friends at the church I was attending um, which was great. And I was playing the piano there. They had a full orchestra and choir, which was such a treat to play with. Um, so I was playing there a couple times a month um, and working with their music director who conducted all of it. And it was it was really good. And they had a great young professionals kind of college age group that I fit very well in with. And so that was really a lifesaver at that time was just having some really fun community. And some of them were music majors. Someone was in her master's degree for opera. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, but Emotionally, I was really having a hard time with some things in my personal life, and um, I was still – I just really wanted to just leave for overseas. I also knew that some of that desire – you know, people want to travel. I I had already walked through, like, what are my motivations for this? Like, Mm -hmm. And I started to realize some of them were for travel, some were for just something different, or the biggest one was I thought that I'd always been kind of 100%. Like, if this was all real, if Jesus – was really the savior. If people were really headed to hell, then I wanted to do whatever I could do to change that, I guess, to serve God in the best way I knew how. And in my mind, since I was a kid, the -hmm. best way to serve God, the most sold out, the most intense way, I guess, Mm -hmm. was overseas missions. And so like when I was a young adult in school, in college, I kind of realized that and was like, okay, that is not necessarily true. So I'd examined my motivations knowing that you can be an engineer and serve Jesus. He's not thinking, oh, you should be over, you know, mm-hmm. on the mission field or anything. And so I had kind of, you know, gotten rid of some of those more childish ideas, but really still felt um, like that's what I wanted to do. That wasn't panning out that year. And so I ended up going back to a camp in East Tennessee that I had worked at while I was a college student. I had a summer job there. They were in need of more of a supervisory position that summer. So this is the summer after I graduated, so a full year later. And um, I decided to do that, and I took all my stuff with me. I was tired of living in Chicago as much as I love it. Winters were hard. I didn't have anything really to stay there for. And so I brought all my things with me, not knowing what I was going to do at the end of the summer. That's how I ended up moving to um, East Tennessee. And then we should probably skip to – a couple years later, so after I've spent some time in Tennessee, I've been involved in ministry. The camp ministry was a big part of my next three or four years. Okay, I lived with a, um, some friends of mine who had three young children and had a fourth um, while I lived with them for about five years over this period. Um, and in 2018, I went to South Asia on a three-month trip. It was like a cultural immersion trip. It was wonderfully... Um, run like it was just a really good trip. We had five of us uh, girls in our mostly late 20s, mid to late 20s on this trip. Um, and it was it was very hard 
culturally, like it exhausted me to be in another culture and to not know what people were saying when they were talking about you in -hmm. front of your face because you can't understand the language. And there's, it's very hard in South Asia being a white Western female. Um, We experienced some um, harassment. Uh, We were followed sometimes. We were spoken to very rudely, very in a sexualized way. And some of us were touched inappropriately. So we just had, we had some (laughs) difficult times there, but overall it was still one of the most formative, exciting, fun times of my life. But it was definitely stressful. Like I ended up with residual anxiety and some gut health problems that I think weren't as much South Asia's fault as just anxiety and like the the release of my body having been stressed for three straight months. Um, I wouldn't undo it though. Um, And one of the reasons why is that's kind of the beginning of the story of how we are talking right now, Mm -hmm. how I've ended up here. Um, Because Asia was, I mean, it was the first time that, well, not the first time I'd been to Israel and Italy, which are by and large, not Christian. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd been a few other places as well that aren't as Christian as, East Tennessee. Um, but South Asia was just overwhelmingly Hindu, Muslim, you know, nothing that I was really accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And that was really fun for me to learn. I have a huge interest in, I've discovered in other religions and just thought in general, like how do people see life? How do people, I heard someone refer to it as their theory of everything. What is their theory of everything? How do you yeah. approach what life is? And make decisions and how do you see spirituality if you see it at all and just all those kinds of questions. And what I discovered was a lot of people that I came into contact with, it was less a question of truth for them and it was a question of culture. Their religion was the same as their culture. There was no like, I'm culturally American and I've chosen to be Buddhist or I've chosen to be Christian or you know, it wasn't like that. Like it, it wasn't even a thought in their minds that they could be a different religion. It's like saying you're, you could not be American anymore if you decide Mm -hmm. to. So that was new to me. It was a very different perspective. And Hinduism in general is just extremely different. Like if you had to pick like what to me felt like the weirdest religion in the world, it might've been Hinduism until I started reading more um, about it. I was reading some, a little book on some Hindu philosophy on the trip. And I saw a lot of echoes of real truth, things that I thought were truth. Um, there was still like the parts where I'd be like, oh, that was so close. But then this doesn't work because they, you know, like the truth went off a little bit of a different direction. But I was just seeing lots of echoes of what I really thought was truth. And I didn't expect so much thoughtfulness in Hin. I don't know why. I just assumed, I guess, with Hinduism, they have a lot of very foreign to us images of their gods and millions of gods. Um mm-hmm. And really just four or five main ones that I kept seeing over and over. And it just seemed kind of um, old and outdated. And then came to realize, you know, there was a lot of thought behind it. Not so much for my friends, though. Like I said, the friends that I made there, they were, they're kind of Hindu. But if you press them on, what do you actually believe? Can you actually talk to these gods? Like, what do they actually do for you? I don't really think they had super strong, heartfelt answers on any of that. But they were Hindu because that's what you are. Um, That's what your family is. Um, So that really began this trip and thinking through all these things really began a struggle with me having to assume that these people were headed for this eternal conscious torment and hell. And they didn't seem to have hearts that were resistant to thinking in a different way. 
but it was almost impossible in their minds to think in a different way. Like Americans are Christian. We're Hindu. We're Muslim. Like there, there's this huge divide of culture in their minds, not just religion. It's not just something you can decide to believe differently. Um, easily. And so there was very little interest in talking about, except for curiosity about us talking Mm -hmm. about our religion or about Jesus. Um, that really just wasn't a conversation that was like in any way spiritual for them or like, Oh wow, this is really interesting. Like it, it was just the same as talking about like kind of what food we eat and what our traditions are. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so it was just very strange. Um, it was a lot different than I thought it would be. And I really started to question God, like, um, and I felt free to ask him, you know, these questions. Like, I thought about hell a lot, about what it meant for people to maybe never decide to follow Christ, or they never even heard of him. Like, the the first time that some of these friends, and these are friends from an urban setting who speak English, who know much more about the world and have more access than people in a rural village in mm-hmm. South South Asia. Like these are educated middle class. We, they are in contact with the world through Netflix, the internet, everything. And they haven't heard about a relationship with Jesus and they have no interest really. And cause it's not relative to them. Like it doesn't really relate to them. And I was like, and how much more are these people in the middle of nowhere with nothing struggling mm-hmm. to survive day to day and nobody ever goes and talks to them about Jesus. And I was like, and surely God cares about the fact that they're barely surviving, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, that they're barely living day to day and they don't even get that help. You know, just the question of suffering in the world and all those questions were just bubbling up. And I was kind of surprised in a way because I thought through them. I thought through them in classes or in personal conversations with people. Everyone kind of ends up talking about those things at some point. And I didn't feel this desperation that I felt while I was in Asia. Um, There was this new, like, this is a really huge question that is looming, multiple questions. Um, And that kind of turned into doubting that he was good um, over the next couple of years. And like for anyone going through this kind of thought process or your, I like to say Circles are bad or circles are at least enlightening. And by that, I mean when your brain is in like a circular loop or your thoughts are in a loop, there's definitely something really deep going on. And there's definitely something that that needs to be like looked at. And the loop that I was in was just constantly like this asking God, um, I guess, if he was good. And I, I tried to – this is a good thing to do too for people going through – just a lot of hard questions and doubts is like try to get to the root of what it is that you want to know or that you're not believing because mm-hmm. there's a lot of other surface related questions, but a lot of things kind of come back to the same thing. And I had this experience talking to a, a young teen the other day asking about suffering and she was asking the same question, but in like six different ways. And I don't even think she realized that at first. And I was like, it's all part of that same question. And I, I couldn't give her an answer <laughs> for why they're suffering, but just congratulated her for finding the question that has <laughs> stumped humanity for yeah thousands of years. Um, so that a lot of a, our, go that, ahead. That is, I think, a nice response. When somebody asks you a hard question and they're really struggling is to first say, well, first of all, congratulations. You have asked a really good question mm-hmm. and, you know, good for you. And just that you have thought about it enough 
to vocalize it and to try to want to talk about it, you know, tells me that you're, you know, that you're really interested in this and you're really, you're really thinking about it. And sometimes, you know, that's just a really nice response. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's a nice way that you're, yeah, I guess, responding to people. I had someone encourage me in a similar way on that trip, the leader of the the base that we were kind of at in South Asia. He said, Becca, I love the way that your brain works um, and said that God had made me that way on purpose and to just keep asking those good questions. So that was a really good, encouraging response. Oh, that is um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I never forgot it because it was so hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um Sorry, I get well, so a you, bit emotional. <laughs> well, so, you, so in other words, well, so there's a lot happening when you're coming back from this. You're, yeah, you've got, you know, there's a, you can have a sort of culture shock. You know, you go mm-hmm. to a foreign culture and and then you come back to your culture, and all of a sudden now your culture seems strange, mm-hmm. um, and all of a sudden, and you're loaded down with uh, stress from just like you said. Uh, standing out and feeling vulnerable, you know, mm-hmm. sort of you're yeah. like, you've been like on alert for three months. Yes, that like is how I put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like your body is, there's a, you know, the body keeps the score as they yeah, say. Yeah, I've read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so you're building up a lot of this, just a lot of, a lot of stuff is, is, is building up and you, and then you come back home and you kind of have to figure out how do I process all of this? Yeah. And they do a great job. Um, They did a great job of continuing the conversation. So they started with three months of conversations leading up to it and kind of training and preparation. And then three months afterwards of continuing to talk, Um, you know, and they would have been the first to say, hey, you should, you know, go to counseling, you know, if it was really difficult or, you know, are you thinking still their, their goal was to really help people overcome their typical barriers to going overseas. Um, so I think everything was really good, um, start to finish. I loved how they handled it. I love those people. Um, uh, I forget where I was going after this. Okay. So um, you, well, well, you, so you've got all these, um, questions around the subject of God's kindness and, and at least in the outline you sent to me of your story, you mentioned mm-hmm. coming across Robin Perry Yeah. in his, yeah. in, in his work. Yeah, so that was quite later. Um, so 2018 is when I went to South Asia. I really went into this just time of I identified my core questions, like the top three questions, which I heard reiterated by someone else. Like it was strange. Like he quoted me in my head, like word for word <laughs> at church one time. First, does God exist? That's kind of the starting point. And then the foundation, the next question would be like, is God good? Um, I'm forgetting the third question right now, but those, the, the the questions that I was asking myself, um, were, does he exist? I never really got away from, does he exist? I was always like, yes, Mm -hmm. because of mostly nature. And even, even if, you know, some kind of evolution is true, that's not a hill I'm going to die on personally, Mm -hmm. but like there has to be in my mind, there just had to be design behind all of it and some kind of loving or personal being behind it. Um, I just couldn't get away from believing in God. But then the question is, is the, is the being behind this creation good? Yes. And that's what I could not answer yes to. I realized, um, I just, as I'm involved in some campus ministries and playing keys and singing, I'm like realizing that I can't honestly sing the words that talk about him being good. 
And I felt kind of this, I felt really heartbroken by that and very, like, I was really struggling with that. Um, but I also am, like, honest to a fault. Um, so mm-hmm. I just really couldn't bring myself to just say stuff that I didn't mean. And so I remember one song in particular, I think it's by John Egan, where it just keeps saying, you are good and everything you do is good. And I just stopped singing that song completely. And that was one of my favorite songs before that. Cause it was really hard for me to believe it. And, um, and I really wanted God to show me how he was. So through this whole process, I've seen many of my classmates from college go any number of directions. I mean, hating the church, hating America, hating all sorts of things. Like I've seen a lot of a good amount of bitterness and hurt. And in their defense, like there's a lot of hurt. Some of these people that I've heard their stories, like it's horrible. Like any, any, believer that I know that I respect would hear that story and say that was wrong, you know, what was done to you or what you experienced in the church. Um, But I really, thankfully, I'm blessed I didn't have a lot of reason to be really hurt or bitter at what maybe the church had done to me. Like, I didn't really have a lot of those experiences. Yeah, sometimes what I think is that, you know, there's some people that that if you ask them about their religious-based trauma, well, it was a very authoritarian situation. They were threatened Mm -hmm. directly with hell all the time. It was that they were yelled at. It was intimidating. You know, if they asked questions, they were told not to ask questions. Yeah. Maybe there were some inappropriate relationships between the ministers mm-hmm. and the people who, you know, in the congregation, you know, so, um, but then there's some, like what you're saying is basically nobody was mean to you. Nobody was abusive to you. It was just strictly the, the you know, the theology or the, what's being talked about. And how can I relate that to my actual lived experience now? Yes. And I was very wary of becoming bitter. Like I didn't I didn't want to see things that I thought were taught wrong or disagree with stuff and then just end up bitter at Christians or my college mm-hmm. or my upbringing or anything. So I was very wary of just reacting. And because I often I've noticed like since I was young, I just noticed what people do. I think that's one of... My strengths probably is gathering wisdom from observing other people and saying, okay, I don't want to do that, or I do want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is that humans tend to, in reaction, they swing the other way like a pendulum. That's right. what happens with culture, I feel like, all the time. Our reaction to maybe the, I don't know, the, I'm trying to think of an example. I can't think of a specific one, but our reaction to something, we swing so far the other way that it's not wise either. Like the yeah. wisdom is somewhere kind of down the middle. Martin Luther, um, said, and I don't agree with everything Martin Luther came up with either. Same. <laughs> One of the like things. His, like his rant about Jews. I was shocked yes. to learn that the other month. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the Jews and their lives or the lives yes. of the Jews, that book, that last book, the tragic book um, yes. that he wrote. But, and so, but what you have to do is I think you have to learn to sort of situate people culturally and say, you know, he yes. was not, he was reflecting a lot of views that was just around that was just around yeah. him. But one of the things that he did say that oh, also the peasant, the peasant revolts, you know, there were, there were huge uh, in the Protestant Reformation. The reason they're called the magisterial reformers is because they had to figure out, okay, like who's in charge now? And they said, okay, the, you know, the King's in charge. Well, there was a peasant revolt. So um, Martin Luther had to decide uh, what should the Christian community do about helping to put down the peasant revolt. And so they, they were very involved in, putting down the peasant revolt. So, you know, he really embraced the violence of the state and, <laughs> and anti-Semitism. 
But he did say this one thing. He said um, that humanity was like a drunkard who, having fallen off his horse on the left side, gets up and falls off on the right side. (laughs) (laughs) That's really good. I don't remember reading that. I think I I read that he said that one. He said a lot of colorful things. That's hilarious. That just reminds me of like the Three Stooges with my watching it with my dad all growing up. That's something they would do is like you get up. I'm pretty sure it happens in some episode. He gets up on one side and whoop, falls off the other. Yeah, and I've noticed that in, um, you know, in Deacon, uh, I, I, I kind of got into more of a mainline Protestant um, church setting, which was very open to asking different kinds of questions. You know, it was it wasn't evangelical fundamentalism, and there's a lot of openness and inclusion and acceptance, and you know, wide ranging conversations and those types of things. But what I would notice is sometimes people would deconstruct from like some kind of fundamentalist. A conservative situation. And instead of saying, huh, well, maybe I should try more like a mainline Protestant or a, um, you know, just a more moderate uh, Christianity that's not so dog, not, you know, not, not so dogmatic. They would, they had the idea that, well, this even this, this church that I grew up in was the only true expression of the Christian faith. So if I leave that, then I have to mm-hmm. leave the whole Christian faith. Yeah, And so it's not like, oh, I'll go check out the I don't know, the Presbyterian church or the Episcopal church or something. It's like, no, I'm out. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was kind of processing this. I've thought about this a lot while you were talking. Um, I don't have a fully formed thought maybe, but yes, I think we're taught uh, kind of understandably. It's like when you really believe something's true, you're going to teach it like it's true, right? So Mm -hmm. we're taught, and especially as kids, kids hear things and my word, they get the wrong idea so easily. Like one of my friends Mm -hmm. Her kids, she didn't realize till her kid was an adult that as a kid, she heard, if I wore the wrong clothes, I'm going to hell. She put those two things together because their church was so strict on clothes, being modest. And they also heard about hell enough. And I don't, I don't know all the details, but in her mind, if she mm-hmm. wore the wrong thing, if she did the wrong thing, she was like going straight to hell. Even though I also assume that they were teaching <laughs> that you're saved and safe, you know, in Christ. I, I don't know, but kids can just assimilate things. And I think a lot of us have assimilated things like just like this isn't just religion. I think this is in every, every human situation. We assimilate things sometimes how they're not meant, or it just makes, it it just creates this foundation in our life. That's very hard to change later. And when you change it, it does feel like you kind of have to chuck everything out. Like it's all or nothing. And that is how it's kind of presented is like, going up, going throughout my life and through college, and I don't think this was right, is that the secondary beliefs, if someone differed from those, so maybe not spiritual gifts, people were free to disagree on that kind of thing, but anything else, like the nature of hell, you questioned, you know, any other big things for evangelicals, then they'll, they'll look at you like they're doubting your salvation at that point. Like you may not be saved if you don't believe these things the same as us. That's the impression I got, even as an adult. Yeah, and it's um, interesting to me that, you know, that 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 hell, like you could believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose again. I believe in the Trinity. I, you know, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the life everlasting. I, um, and you could say all of those things, but if you say, but that part about hell being a place that God puts people forever and ever, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I think that I agree with that, that part. Well, then you find out that 
that that is the way I've put it before is that's not a doctrine that that, that about uh, that that's a part of Christianity. For a lot of people, that is Christianity. Christianity is the simple proposal that there is a heaven and there's hell, and mm-hmm. you're going to go to one of those places forever. Yes. So that's not like a doctrine. That's like what it is. That's like the whole. That's like yeah. the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> so. I think. Yeah. I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head. So there's like no other option. And again, if you, I like, I understand that. Like, I don't really blame people for what I've always thought before or what I was taught before because I believed like mm-hmm. I could have just as easily gone on and just taught people my whole life the same thing and passed it on because we we just that's what we do we believe things and then we teach them like it's fact but I do wish that that like instead of just I think I would have been met if I'd questioned hell even sooner questioned it more at school or something I think I would have been met with a lot of understanding because people understand why that's a hard question if they're at all empathetic you know Mm-hmm. I think I have been met with a lot of interest, understanding, like not like eight, nine ten, times out of 10, even in the last year, since my views have really changed, I've been met with understanding. But then like you talk about somebody's book, like when Rob Bell questioned hell and he didn't even state any new view that he had in that book. Right. He just, he just brought up a bunch of questions that everyone's thinking about and then got like murdered for it <laughs> kind of. <laughs> And yeah, I remember I re- him falling out of graces with the church. I remember it now looking back. I was like, oh, yeah, we completely stopped using all of Rob Bell's stuff. Mm-hmm. So the implication to a young person is if you believe this, you will be excommunicated, essentially. Or like, even you can't if you believe just, anything else. Well, he didn't. The thing that was funny about that book for me was he didn't. He, he openly says in the book, does this mean everybody is going to ultimately be saved? And he says, I don't know. It could Maybe it maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't happen. But he says, but I think it's something that is something that should be considered. And we should know why people mm-hmm. in the history of church have thought that this was a, a legitimate belief. And so yeah. he didn't really even come out and endorse it in any kind of hardcore way. He just was trying to say, can we put this hell question in its proper context and not make it like the thing that's driving everything? Yeah. Um, and I get people's fear of straying from what they believe is the truth and towards what they think would be harmful. And I have had people, mostly one person respond to me that way where it felt like, and I probably in this conversation was probably coming across defensive as well. So (laughs) it probably Mm -hmm. wasn't very helpful. Um, But it was more of like this, Oh, I'm scared for you. Like you're headed in the wrong direction. Like this is, this is really bad somehow. But then, so yeah, the the yeah that Rob Bell thing was interesting to me later because I ended up reading that book. So this is the years in between my trip to South Asia and now, or well, about a year ago, a year and almost a half ago now is when I I believe. Mm-hmm. Am I forgetting? I'm almost forgetting the timeline of if it was this past fall. No, it, no, it was this past fall that I changed my mind. I feel like officially to universal reconciliation. So it was like the year before that or the couple years before that, that I was reading voraciously. Like at the end of this last year, Spotify gave me um, my yearly, like it, they like wrap up your year and tell you how many um, hours you spent listening to music. And mm-hmm. it was 750 hours, I think, in that year I had spent on Spotify, which is insane. If you think about kind of the breakdown, I was like, wow, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Most 90% of that or more. More of that. I think it was more than 95% of that was podcasts in 2022. Um, I've hardly listened to music 
since 2018 by myself. <laughs> um, part of that, I've I've almost I haven't really burnt out. Actually, this is this I do enjoy this. Like I enjoy thinking deeply. I enjoy listening to other people's thoughts. So like it has been good. Sometimes my best friend like you need to calm your brain down and just like rest it. Sometimes. <laughs> um, which is true at times, but honestly, it's something I just really love and has, I've probably run some circles and taken some long ways around the past five mm-hmm. years, but, but I, I really do enjoy it. And podcasts have been a huge thing just to hear people talk. And when, just when we were talking about Rob Bell, another thought I had was like, and Luther, what he said about some things that we would not agree with at all, like Jews mm-hmm. and their lies or whatever that paper was called. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to burn someone down for their beliefs or because I disagree with them now, everything that they put out is sullied somehow. Like that's another attitude that I really don't love about a lot of people that I've seen who are believers throughout my life is like once somebody dissents from like a commonly held view or they're expressing their differences of beliefs or what conclusions they've come to and how they've changed, it's like immediately they're just thrown into this box called heretics or something close to that. Mm -hmm. And I really, just like with Luther, he had valuable things to say. I'm not going to burn everything he's ever written because he also wrote anti-Semitically. And I didn't, and I, looking back, I wish we hadn't just completely chucked out everything we'd used from Rob Bell because we were super into those NUMA videos until he wrote that book. And then all of a sudden from our youth group, Rob Bell just disappeared with, I don't remember an explanation. Maybe there was. Yeah, well, um, when that happened, uh, I live in a uh, in Arkansas in a small in a small town. In the, you know, there was all the Rob Bell stuff was in the local Christian bookstore, and then Love Wins came out, and it was all gone like overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I understand not wanting to be. I struggle with the. This is this could be a rabbit trail, which we have other things to talk about. But <laughs> I struggle with how Christians in order to not be associated with something they disagree with, like bend over backwards to not be associated with it. When Jesus sat down with prostitutes, I have never understood that attitude. Like this Christian college in Florida uninvited a singing group because one of the people was openly gay. I'm like, how does, how does that make, how is that going to affect their concert? Okay. I can get on soapboxes sometimes, so we're not going to go down that rabbit trail. And I also don't mean mm-hmm. to come across extremely judgmental if someone listening has made a similar decision. I understand the yeah desire to not be, not come across as affirming things, but I think we mm-hmm. should be confident in that we should love people well. And when people question our beliefs because of who we associate with, then we can say something, you know, we can defend ourselves or state our beliefs, but I don't think anyone is going to be upset with us for loving well. And then when they ask us, wait, are you supporting this? Are you agreeing with this? And then we say, no, but I love this person. I think most people will be very touched by that. So that's well, kind of my ab- approach. Let's talk this. about your, on your, you, uh, in some of the notes that you sent me, you said in the fall of 2021, mm-hmm. I encountered Christian universalism through Robin Perry's appearance on the unbelievable podcast with Justin Wyerly and Robin Perry's he wrote the book called The Evangelical Universalist, which he published under the pen name of Gregory MacDonald, mm-hmm. uh, because at the time he was working for another publishing house and he didn't want to cause them trouble. But uh, The Evangelical Universalist was, was one of the books that I read, um, you know, about the time I was, that Rob Bell's book 
was coming out, I read that and I read Evangelical Universalist, read a book by Thomas Talbot called The Inescapable Love of God. Mm-hmm. I read a book by um, Brad Jerzak called Her Gates uh, Will Never Be Shut. Anyway, that that started getting, because prior to that, I had thought that annihilationism was Maybe God saves everybody that's savable, but maybe there's some people that embrace evil to such an extent, you know, that that even when God shows God's self to them fully, so that there's no misunderstanding, they still completely understanding who God is, decide that they don't want anything to do with God. And I thought, well, you know, so God is going to save everybody that's savable, but maybe there's just some people that just aren't savable. And maybe that's a handful of people. I don't know. Um, but once I started thinking more through things. And I was just processing who I thought God was and what I thought God's ultimate purposes in creation were and those types of things. I, I had a similar journey with you. I, I made that that step from thinking, okay, God can save everybody that's savable to there's nobody that's not savable for God. And that God will knows the end from the beginning. And of course, God is love and God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. So um, you know, the story of the garrison demoniac. If Jesus can save the garrison demoniac, Jesus can, you know, evict whatever lies or demonic forces or whatever. Anyway, so I got to that point, but it was kind of the same process that you're talking about. I, I thought I had things worked out and then I started just realizing that it still wasn't exactly like it needed to all fit together for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a really big struggle, like back to not believing, not being able to believe that God was good, mostly the existence of an eternal hell Mm -hmm. was the issue there. I kept coming back to it and I was at the point where I, first of all, was extremely frustrated with having to try to figure all this out. Like (laughs) it just seemed like I had gotten a dog last year and I would just look at my dog and be like, can't I just be a dog? Like I would rather be a dog (laughs) that doesn't have to worry about any of this, which is actually really sad. Like it is funny. I can laugh about it, but it's a really sad thing when you're like, you should be rejoicing that you're a human. I remember thinking this, like I should be rejoicing that I'm a human able to know God in a, in Mm -hmm. a different way than a dog does. But instead I'm wishing I'm a dog because all of this is so heavy and so hard that I'm wishing I was my dog. I'd rather be Freddie sleeping in a puddle of sunshine and just trotting out in the yard and doing whatever I want and not having to worry about existential questions. <laughs> um, so I was very frustrated and I was just sometimes to the point of just like wanting to give up. But give what does giving up mean? I couldn't, there wasn't really like right anything I could do. I had to like either kind of take breaks from thinking about it and I knew I would come back to it, but I just, I couldn't. I couldn't stop myself yeah, or that from your, yeah, your brain, your, from what you were saying, you're like, you're, you could, you could break from it for a while, but your brain kept coming back to it. It was like, I can't, yeah. I've got to solve this. Yeah. And I knew it was like trying, like I had to try to solve it with God too, which with God was a hard thing to grasp too at this time, because along with not really knowing what I believed about his goodness, like I had, I've just lost, I've still for the most part have lost my emotional connection with my beliefs like whereas before they were just a given like the sky is blue or the sun's gonna rise in the morning like I didn't even give a second thought to my beliefs in that sense it was just a part of who I was is very passionate from a young age very dedicated 
really loved God, prayed some really scary prayers at a young age of like, God, do whatever you want with me as long as I'll be closer to you. Um, that was like at age 11, I prayed that. And I still remember that. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm finding myself like, and I was as dedicated as, I ever, as I'd ever been up until 2018. And then I started really struggling. And then I really struggled with losing a lot of my emotional connection to what I believe. And so it's just been a very mind-centered journey. And I've tried to not let, you know, my heart just be like cold or bitter. Like I said, I was very guarded against becoming bitter um, or too frustrated. And so I would still, I've never stopped, you know, talking to God and asking God things and asking him for things. And um, so I would just, I just kept feeling like I had to come back to finding out if he was good. Because if he, the two alternatives to me that I've, I've talked with some friends who aren't sure what they believe about God too. And to me, what it comes down to is I'm like, okay, so if you can accept there's a God, like, do you believe he's perfectly good or not? One of my friends answered no, because look how messed up the world is. He's probably just up there making a bunch of mistakes. Like, sorry guys. And I was like, that's such an, that's such an interesting perspective. Cause I've never considered that God could be anything less than good really. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's kind of the same as he might as well not exist because if he's just up there bungling everything, mm-hmm. I don't really want anything to do with him. And he doesn't sound that great to me. So that's just as good as there really not being a God because who cares about a God that's just up there bungling everything and messing it all up, making mistakes. Um, Or he has to be perfectly good. And I definitely want to know that God. And he definitely Mm -hmm. loves me if he's perfectly good. Well, in the notes, in the notes, in the notes that you sent me, you said there were two, um, two, the the, the big barriers, a couple of big barriers Mm -hmm. about considering universalism as a possibility. One, the Bible seems to say that hell is eternal, and two, God must preserve our free will. So tell tell us a little bit about your journey there, thinking through those things. Yeah, I I like to boil things down. So, you know, I boiled it down to the question. That's what I didn't know about, if God was good. And then I, when I heard Robin Perry, I think this would have been after, yeah, after I heard Robin Perry explain it really well on Unbelievable with Justin Barley, I boiled it down to, okay, so what's standing in the way besides the fact that this just sounds like it couldn't be true? Like, I think Diane said that. She was like, she read it briefly like 20 years prior and was like, oh yeah, but of course that's not true. And that was sort of my assumption until I heard Robin Perry, because I'd heard it hinted at maybe before, but just hadn't even given it much of a thought. So yeah, boiled down to the Bible seems to say that hell is eternal. So I was reading all of the New Testament and spurts like in searching for every reference to hell and what it was like. Um, And I found that there's really just two, maybe three. I think, I think there's just two or three verses that even tackle like the nature or length of hell at all. Right. Cause there's a lot of passages about hell that we should, you know, look into and that it kind of talks about what it might be like or what its purpose is. But as far as the length, that's what I was interested in, the length of hell. I I don't really, I didn't really have a problem with God using justice. I felt like that's appropriate. Like there are horrific things that have been done and there being some kind of reckoning for that. That's fine. It was the length of hell. So I looked for specifically the length of hell and there's, there's the famous Matthew 25 and then there's Rose of Revelation 21, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Um, later in Revelation, and it seemed to, you know, be saying that hell was eternal. Well, there's, 
you know, other views on that. And they're not bending over backwards hard at all, if at all, to, to say that, you know, this could be meaning something different. And I think the strongest one is, yeah, you've talked a lot on your podcast about the word Aeonian. Mm-hmm. So when I looked into that, I expected it to be a little bit more of a harebrained argument because I feel like there's a lot of when people are trying to dissect Greek words, it can start to get very hairy and who knows who's right. Like it can just be right. very, very difficult to say who's right. And and um, and I don't want to act like I appreciate Robin's and yours, like your humility and just kind of like, here are the facts. You can look at them and I'm not going to, you know die on this hill or say that you beat you over the head like you need to believe this too so mm-hmm. so this is not like there's no there's no um final na- you know this is not a nail in the coffin but something to consider about the word aeonian as, as you've said is that it's translated in other places as an age it's it's not our word in english where eternal is very specific like that has a specific time oriented unending time meaning associated with it. Mm-hmm. The word Aeonian isn't like that. You know, it's it's an it's an age, an unspecified length of time that nobody knows the ending maybe. You know, it's like, it's just the, and the Jews thought in ages, Aeonian. Like there was the age that is, that they were in and then there's this future age that God is going to perfect things. Mm-hmm. Like I, they had that idea, right? Well, I noticed that Paul even talked about, I think it's Ephesians 2, 7, talked about God showing us his glories of, well, his purposes over the coming ages. Yeah. Like, wait a second. How can that? I thought if there's just this age, th- we're in this age, and then there's another age to come, and th- that's it. There's two ages. How can there be ages yet to come? And then that mm-hmm. phrase in the in the sometimes you run into forever and ever turns out to be into the ages of the ages, which has a different. You know, at first of all, how can there be an ever after a forever? If there's yeah forever well then how do you ever how do you get to the ever after forever forever and ever and then oh that's into the ages of the ages and then origin uh, thought that okay well at the end of the after all of the ages are complete god will finally be all in all and then nobody will be in an age anymore and then we'll transcend the ages because god is the god of the ages so i realized that in the bible they were just thinking about time in a completely different way than we were used to it. And once you start throwing the English word eternal around, it kind of makes it to where you can't enter into their world and with the way they might have been thinking about time. Yeah. And very similarly with the, um, the word English word hell, like that's just an English word, just an English word. That's not, I mean, that's not what Jesus was saying when he was talking about hell. And it really, really kind of shook my helped me wipe that whiteboard clean to kind of start over with what I thought about hell and just get it from scripture. Because when I saw that Jesus, most of the time he's saying Gehenna or he's saying, is it um, Hades, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's either talking, mostly it's either talking about Gehenna or Hades. Yeah. And Gehenna comes up a bunch and Gehenna is such a specific word. It's not a generic word like hell is for us. That means that place where everyone burns. Like Gehenna was a location that I have seen because I went to Israel in college, like it was a specific location. Obviously, there's so much history and meaning with that word, since it is a physical location outside of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But yet we've just, or it's it's gone. Like I was just thinking, why didn't they just leave the word in there? Why not use Gehenna? If it's a physical location like Jerusalem, 
for instance, why would they, they wouldn't erase Jerusalem and just say the holy city or make up some other thing to replace the word. You would just yeah. transliterate it because it's a, and, a pronoun, yeah. like um, capitalized word, a location. Yeah. And, and when the, when the Bible came into English in the King James, they used the word, the English word hell, just as a way to translate these words, Sheol and Gehenna. So that means that in the Old Testament, you got hell mm-hmm. in the in the Old Testament and you got hell in the New Testament. And 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 so hell was the word that was used to translate Gehenna and Hades and Sheol. So you get this and one Tartarus. word. Yeah. Yeah. So you get this one word that then it looks like if you're reading the Bible in English, you know, it kind of looks like the first English readers of the Bible in the King James would have seen hell kind of all over the place. Yeah. And Which it's would understandable. Made... Yeah. So yeah, it's understandable sorry. how they would have come to those conclusions. Yeah. And it would have been this unified idea that isn't even one unified idea. I mean, you can definitely see the, you know, some of the old Testament prophets, the similarities of their talking. And I don't, I can't even recall any specifically right now that are talking about Sheol. It's usually just God's judgment. I don't, I Sheol's the shadowy place that everyone goes righteous and unrighteous to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's some similarities throughout scripture of God's judgment, but it's not always this, yeah, unified word hell. That's not a thing because that's or only they in did, English. Or they did talk about the Valley of Gehenna as being the Valley of Slaughter. You know, yes. so they, that was, that was already a context that had to do with destruction and ruin for them. So if yeah. Jesus used the word Gehenna, the Jews of his day wouldn't have said, well, what are you talking about? They would have Oh, like, oh, okay, that's the valley yes. of slaughter and destruction, you know. And so mm-hmm. it would have been, to me, it was almost like, uh, yeah, if you if you participate, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you participate in violence and evil thinking, uh, even thinking, you know, the violent thoughts towards other people, dehumanizing other people, what that leads to is, you know, basically the, gar- the big garbage dump, a big, you know, a, a valley of destruction, you know, that that's, yeah. that's not where you want to go. Yes. And when I say like wiping the whiteboard clean and I'm trying to get everything from scripture and then I realize that there's no like word hell, let's read the original words, which is Hades and Gehenna. That really started helping like reframe things. And I'm not saying to erase judgment at all. Like that is not at all what I'm saying. It's just that there's a hyperlink there when he says Gehenna for a reason to a whole history of things that Jews would know about, which is like when they they would probably cover their eyes in shame, they sacrifice their their children at one point in history in that valley, right? To mm-hmm. was it Molech? Yeah. And so there's just a whole host of awful cursed things that have to do with this valley. But then coming back to the length of this judgment, well, most places that we talk about Gehenna or Hades, there's not an indication of length. Um there are just a couple places that do seem to indicate length. Yeah, which we talked about. So that was kind of that was eye-opening to me that there were a couple of contestable places, just a couple, not 10, 12, like literally two or three places that were contestable, that used words that were much bigger than just an unending period of forever time. Um, It was very eye-opening to me that there was just a couple of those. And then on the flip side, I started looking for, well, what's the biblical evidence for God rescuing all people? And then that list grew and grew and grew and grew. Like I have this Word document um, that I just listed and I've highlighted in my Bible app on my phone, like every verse that I encounter 
that seems to infer, and some are very direct, some are less direct, but there's a whole bunch of very direct verses that talk about God restoring all things. Like an easy one is, I can't, I'm not always good at recalling references, but in Romans where, um, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And that was one of the first ones that stuck out to me because I sang it every year of my bachelor's degree in Messiah because <laughs> we mm-hmm. sang Messiah every single year in the fall, right? But, and then practiced all the way till right before Christmas. I always loved it. It was wonderful, you know, live orchestra, huge choir with all the, all the choir um, members of our three choirs and then our whole symphonic band with some added hired in, in musicians. It was just a beautiful thing. My best friends almost always had solos in it and it was wonderful to hear them sing. And so those words, like I know those backwards and forwards because I've sung through that. So, so, and I was like, how did I never hear this? How did I never notice how, how obvious and simple those words are as in Adam all die. We know that. I assumed that was true. I've always believed that. So in Christ shall all be made alive. And like, I didn't even hear how parallel those two statements were and how all meant all in the first statement, but I didn't hear the all in the second statement in the same way because of presuppositions mm-hmm. that we have. We just overlook things. When we, pre- when we presume things, we don't see things with the same lens. And so having taken the lenses off and not of wanting to pursue orthodoxy, like that that has always been my intention, but taking my lenses off so I could start afresh by just learning from scripture is what I mean by that. Taking those lenses off and just looking in scripture, I was so shocked to see this list of verses grow that seemed to support this idea. And then as I'm starting to accept this idea, because I'm seeing the biblical evidence for it, I'm seeing the lack of evidence for the the length of hell, or at least the very short list of verses that maybe say that it's like unending. Um, I really started to just see more and more and more verses popping up and other smaller issues that started to make sense. Like Diane mentioned this in the, in the podcast, like in second, I think it's second Peter could be first Peter, where it says that Jesus went and preached to those who are dead. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard someone explain that well because there is no good way to explain that. <laughs> there is, there's no good way to talk about that. If you believe that hell is like a fixed eternal place, once you're there, you're there forever. It's just a very odd verse. Also the verse that um, when Paul says, otherwise, what do we mean by baptizing people on behalf of the dead? Well, what good is being baptized on behalf of someone who's already gone when your eternal state is fixed? So like verses, some verses that have had never made sense to me, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that's not a problem anymore. Oh, that's not a problem anymore. And then I remember like a, a day after, a couple of days after changing my mind and I had talked to, it was kind of funny because this mentor kind of couple that I've known for, it was since the summer that I got back from South Asia. Like they've known me since a very key time in my life and talked with mm-hmm. me while I just cried my eyes out about things. Um, I talked to them told them what I'd been thinking, told them, I think I really believe this. And they said, well, guess what, Becca? We've believed this for three or four years. We just haven't told many people. Um, Isn't that interesting? I, th- <laughs> yeah. That, you know, I, <clears throat> I hear that kind of story a lot, that that people are holding this um, view kind of in reserve, it, it, but they're not going to put their cards out on the table until they know it's safe. And so I just, I'm wondering how many people are, 
are thinking these things and are either entertaining the idea seriously or have come to conclude that they believe it, but maybe they're still in a church that doesn't teach it or they just don't feel like they want to share it uh, unless they know it's safe. Yes. And I think maintaining relationships is a big motivator. Um, I'm just honest to a fault and (laughs) I just like, I can't keep my mouth shut. That's my best friend says too. She's like, it's fine. That's just who you are. You just can't keep your mouth shut about stuff. (laughs) If I'm thinking about things, if I really think like I'm, I try to be very intellectually honest. Like, like when we were talking about having differing views, what I'm really interested in is if someone has honestly come to this conclusion with some good reasoning and good evidence. If it's if your conclusion is that you're actually a fish, not a person, but if you have good reasons, I will respect that. You know, <laughs> like I'll respect somebody's journey to get to where they have if they've done it honestly. If I don't see a whole ton of anger and spitefulness, and you know, I just want to know that people have arrived there honestly. So this whole time, I mean, that's definitely a big value of mine is just integrity and how I think through things. But talking to those people was really encouraging. Of course, I was like, just shocked. <laughs> I was like, you what? And they're like affirming everything I'm saying. I'm talking through all these things I've thought through. And they're like, yeah, that, yeah, we get it. We get it. So that was very encouraging. And I, I was about to say before that, that a couple of days later, I'm like driving to work. And then I, what came to my mind was like that the, the age old argument between predestination and free will, which I had engaged in sometimes reluctantly over food in the cafeteria in college. People mm-hmm. get really into it. And I always kind of had this kind of thought in the back of my mind that we're spending way too much energy on something. I have a feeling God's kind of laughing at us uh, for doing this, for arguing over this. And um, I thought about that issue after I changed my mind about re- universal reconciliation. And that argument was just gone. It just like poofed into thin air because mm-hmm. – I finally could see how both were so important. Like God really holds us accountable for the choices that we make. Our choices are real. They really affect people. They really affect us. They affect how the trajectory of history goes. Like they are real choices that are free and we don't need to go until the, I don't even understand all the different types of free will people talk about necessarily, but they really are free in some sense. And at the same time, we can take so much comfort in God's predestining his sovereignty um because in the end he wins like that whole argument was just gone into thin air and it was just a reason for confidence in god and to mm-hmm. worship him yeah that those those things don't have to be in con- contrast with each other that yeah. that god can uh, preserve free will but still with and without violating our wills help us to get to the point where we really see and understand the direction that we, that we want to go. And so God mm-hmm. is not in a rush. And so God can do that over time because God wouldn't want to uh, like damage our personality and have us do something that we didn't really understand or, or want to do, but God has the time to do that. And, um, mm-hmm. but the, you know, the idea is that the, if the truth will set you free, it must be that, that we're we're aiming towards the truth or goodness or love, and that's the reason that it sets us free because it it frees us up to go the direction that we were as children of God. We're created in a certain way to go a certain direction. So when our wills are freed up or unencumbered, yeah, then we start moving that direction. So yes, it makes sense yeah. to me 
I read a lot of books. I wish we could talk through all of it. I love to verbally process and talk through everything, but <laughs> I read Robin Perry's book. I read, uh, I read the, um, I forget what it's called, but it's a series of essays and it goes back and forth between traditional, the traditional view of hell and universal reconciliation. Robin mm-hmm. Perry helped edit it. Um, and it's like a series of essays. That's really good. I, maybe you can, we can find out the title and put it in the notes or something. I don't know, but okay. it's, uh, it's like the current debate, I think. Yeah. The like current the, debate. Yeah. yeah. The current debate is the name of that book. Yeah. It's like, that's like the, the post the second title. I can't remember the first, but, um, that was really helpful because I really, uh, with having those back-to-back arguments by some of the best thinkers, it was like, seemed even more clear to me that the arguments for universal reconciliation just really held up well. Um, and that didn't violate scripture because everybody's views has a few scriptures that are hard to deal with. So you can't knock down universal reconciliation just because there are two places that seem to say hell will last forever. Like in my mind, that'd be so silly because in the reverse, you're having to reread things like the Romans verse I quoted as in Adam all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, if you believe in the traditional view of hell, you're going to have to explain why that perfectly parallel sentence isn't exactly parallel, which to me is a little bit, that's shaky ground to stand on. And I'm not saying it's impossible that that's not correct, but um, everyone has a few verses that are difficult to deal with, but the trajectory of the biblical story, and it's something, the biblical story I've been immersed in since I was a kid and learned so much in college and throughout my life, like it made so much more sense to me that as you were saying, like God has time, he's not in a hurry. And the fact that he would have to hurry before everyone's death date, whether they die at 12 or 18 or 52, mm-hmm. didn't seem to fit with that idea that we're supposed to have this relationship with God. Because if there's some kind of like expiry date on how long he can be merciful to us, and if you die young, sorry, you didn't have very much time, like it didn't really add up to me. And then that was another thing that just fell into place after I changed my mind was that it really could be this organic relationship with God where just like how it with Israel in the Old Testament, it matched up with that so much in my mind. He let Israel go so far off track. Like he didn't control them. He -hmm. didn't keep them in the right place. They constantly wandered from him. Like it's almost comical how often they were so far from him and yet he never left them. Mm -hmm. And how many times he acquiesced to the request when he knew it was a bad idea, like wanting a king. Like he, he was so patient over generations too. So like we could talk about what about all the individuals? What about the people that died while Israel was far from God? And yet Paul says that in the end, all Israel will be saved. There's another verse that you cannot explain well, um, unless you believe that God continues to work past what we normally think of, of, of as the like cutoff time. Right. God is working throughout generations for this entire people with a history of millennia. That's millennia long. He's working with them and bringing them back and back again and back again. And he's always emphasizing, yes, his judgment is there. But the thing that rides through all of the Bible is his patience and his loving mm-hmm. kindness. And how could his loving kindness and patience be the overarching message of scripture and what Jesus did on the cross if the ultimate reality is that people are being tortured forever. Like I just could not get my mind around that. And it just makes, yeah, it just everything just makes so much more sense of how he could be so patient and want a relationship with people. I, I really, I, it, was, it was really fun when I found that passage in uh, the third chapter of Lamentations 
Lamentations 3, 31 mm-hmm. through 33, but it starts out for God does not cast off anyone forever. Yeah, he, he does show, he does bring people to grief, but, you know, so great is his compassion that his, mm-hmm. you know, that his mercies are, you know, endure forever. So that to me was just this beautiful testimony from the Jewish people at the depth of their lamentations over having been conquered and their temple destroyed that, um, you know, there's this testimony that, well, the God does not cast off anyone forever. And I started thinking, well, certainly Jesus n- knew that scripture and was familiar with all of these ideas. And that was kind of the way that he treated people. He didn't treat people as um, sort of expendable. And and he wasn't. He also wasn't afraid to grieve people, the, the rich young ruler that came to him. And, you know, it, he... he he made him face his connection with wealth in such a way that it caused him to have to turn away and to leave. But it says that he loved him, but he wasn't afraid of, you know, having him to sort of cast him away and cause him grief over things. And then his disciples said, well, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And he said, well, with, with, you know, mortals, it's not possible, but with God, all things are possible. So, you know, I start reading all of that stuff and seeing how well it fits in with the universal restoration. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Jesus, like you said, he wasn't afraid to call to the young man's attention the biggest hurdle that he had to following Jesus. Because following Jesus isn't just something else that would always bother me is like we treat salvation like it's a light switch moment. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't hold up the more that you think about it, that there's at some point you were headed to hell forever. And then at some point you believed enough, you prayed enough, you followed long enough because, you know, when someone falls away, we'll be like, Oh, well maybe they never knew Christ. So it's like their switch never flipped. But Mm -hmm. then that brings in a whole host of doubts about like, well, how hard do you have to believe? How long do you have to be consistently following and all these things? Mm -hmm. And if you, you have, if you believe in eternal hell or heaven and that it's fixed at some point because of the belief you have in your heart, then you have to believe that, yeah, there's this moment that that happens and that it possibly can't be undone. And this rich young ruler, Jesus didn't like go into a gospel presentation like that. That wasn't a thing. He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't um, say, here's how, you know, the six step process, you just have to believe in me and we'll work on your attachment to your wealth. Like you do need to work on that but you just need to believe in me and follow me so we can get you safe and headed for heaven. And granted, you know, people might come back. Well, Jesus is all knowing he was going to take care of him. And yeah, I believe that. But Jesus called to his attention, the thing, the hurdle, and all of us have hurdles in the way of actually following Christ day by day in a real way, like with decisions we have to make. Um, And Jesus just was comfortable. He pointed it out and the guy went away sad and he, but then he says, yeah, everything is possible with God. Um, and that just spoke of so much hope. And I, I really wanted to believe that I do believe that, that Jesus never loses hope for people, but that he will attract them in his way and in his time. Some people are never going to hear in this lifetime. Um, and that's okay with me now. Like God really is looking at people's hearts. And I just find it, I found it also interesting that, I had read heaven and hell into many passages where it didn't really talk about that. Or like in Matthew 25, it does kind of talk about what's going to happen to people after death. It is, or in judgment. But if you notice, what are the criteria for people ending up in Aeonian 
you know, destruction or judgment. The criterion is not believing in a gospel presentation, believing Jesus is the Christ, that God sent him for our sins, all of that. The criteria is, did you serve me? Like, did you serve the least of these? So if we're getting like separated into sheep and goats based on if we like helped at a soup kitchen or helped the poor, like that's kind of crazy. And that's kind of what it's saying is like, if you don't have a heart for the poor, whoop, there you go. Like you can go to eternal mm-hmm. judgment. Um, well, also so the, uh, me think. what one, one thing that helped to me is learning that the, a lot of the judgment language that Jesus is using in the new Testament has to do with the, that generation and what was getting ready to happen with the destruction of Jerusalem and the mm-hmm. whole, and the whole context and the idea that, you know, in, in the Bible, there's a whole theology of the nations and we're not used to thinking about nations getting saved. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you look in the revelation, you know, there leaves for the healing of the nations. And so there's this theme of the nations and that Matthew 25, when I started looking at that, it says all the ethnos or all the nations are gathered. So it's not even clear to me if it's individual people or nations that are gathered. Mm, yeah. And then he talks about the people who are being you know, um, his brothers and sisters. Well, it could, there's, there's one argument that what's being talked about there is that it's uh, Jesus disciples that are going out and they're, if they're being abused, well, it turns out the nations need to know that if you're abusing one of my disciples, that's just like you're abusing me. So that would explain Mm -hmm. like why the nations are like, well, when did we ever see you? And he said, well, you know, when you put me in, when you put these people in prison or you abuse these and you know, these Mm -hmm. folks, uh, that's what you're doing to me. So uh, I guess what what happens is, like you're saying, if you've got this lens of e- like eternal torment, eternal separation, you read that story and you see that. Or if you've got the lens on that says, I know some people in my background in Christianity was pretty much all about, for them, it was all about social justice and serving the poor. And so then they read that story and that's all they saw was, okay, there's going to be a final judgment and separation based upon whether you serve the poor or not. And although you grew up in sort of formed in an environment where every you were judged on whether or not you believed, I was in an environment where people were saying, no, you're judged on whether you serve the poor or not. So if you, if you went through life and you were not compassionate on the poor, then maybe you would be lost in hell forever because you didn't fulfill the requirement. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, maybe we're kind of even missing, we're sort of missing the original context and ideas about what was going on. And maybe what we think is going on there is not even what was really going on. Maybe it's a whole different conversation. But it just, it just uh, kind of highlights how you tend to see the Bible through the lenses that you have on, you know, when you're looking at the texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that lens was definitely like believing in your heart. That's what flips the switch so Mm -hmm. so all i was saying about matthew 25 is like that doesn't fit that paradigm there's a bunch of things that jesus says that do not fit when he's talking about the kingdom of god or judgment it it doesn't fit the paradigm of all you have to do is believe because there like you said he's referencing serving the poor so that just made me think okay i'm missing something here because jesus is being in a bunch of places, he's extremely focused on people's deeds. He's extremely focused on how they live their life. Like he points out to the rich young man something about his heart and his deeds. He doesn't say just, just all you need to do is believe in me. It's okay. We'll work on that. Like 
Jesus is constantly pointing to people's deeds. And the Bible continues to say, it says in a bunch of places, that we'll be judged according to what we do. So that seems when I started seeing those things, because my eyes were just mm-hmm. willing to see things that I hadn't seen before because of presuppositions. Now I'm seeing we're judged according to what we do, which seems to go against the belief that I'd always been taught all you have to do is believe and then following is a natural outpouring of that. It should show up if you truly know him, if you have really believed, mm-hmm. then you'll do these things. And then I'm seeing Jesus focus mostly often on what people do And then once I changed my mind, I was like, that was another puzzle piece that kind of fell in. Because when you're not harping on and just overly concerned all the time about this fixed separation between eternal heaven, eternal hell, you're going one of these two places. When you really step out of that and see the relationship with Jesus and with God that we're cultivating day to day, it's a continuum. It's not not the, the flip of a switch. It's not the moment that you believe enough. Um, Did you believe enough as a five-year-old or not? Well, this person grows up and keeps following him. This person falls away. Like, it's not about this moment. It's about a relationship. And I was like, wow, I've never been able to really see this as a relationship because I believed that there was a moment where that switch had to flip for somebody, Mm -hmm. for myself. So you're either in or you're out. Now it's not, are you in or you out? Are you becoming friends with Jesus? Are you friends with Jesus? And us trying to talk about the moment that you're in or you're out or you were out and now you're in is as silly as saying, at what moment did you know that you were friends with your best friend? Like, what was the moment? Can you tell me about the moment? And you're like, (laughs) what are you talking about? Like the moment you become friends. I mean, here was some cool things that happened that made us closer. But what do you mean the moment that I knew we were friends? Like, you don't think that way, right? Like relationships Mm -hmm. are this organic, gradual thing, but I could never let it be that. And we often can't let it be that because so many people are thinking about, we need to get these people saved. And so they're fine with using hell as a scare tactic, which I've seen used at ministries I've been a part of with and by, by well-intentioned people. I want to say that very well-intentioned Bible teachers Mm -hmm. and they believe it's the truth. And so giving the truth is fine. So I understand the justification there, but like with young children, one of my friends, um, experienced that as a young child, accepted Christ in a prayer, went home and told her unbelieving dad, did you know you're going to hell? And like, does not believe any of that anymore. And I hate, and that just like hurts me that such a young kid, it was, it was fear. I assume, I mean, I want to speak for her, what her motivations were, but like fear was used and she didn't even understand. That was the, that was the biggest thing she heard was like, you believe or you go to hell. But I finally now I'm like, this really is a relationship that I can rest in, that no matter where I'm at in it, no matter where someone else is at in it, whether they're just first hearing about him or they've really wrestled with their faith and actually living out things or feeling guilty or they don't like the church they were in as a kid, whatever they're struggling with, whether it's a mental health issue or something, all kinds of things get in the way of us connecting with God. Some of them are our fault in a way and our choices, and some of them are just struggles or experiences that we've had that are not our fault at all that have happened to us or that we just wrestle with. And and I had so much grace for myself during this process. And I knew the whole time I never feared hell. Like I wasn't one of those people who's like, now that I'm reconsidering all this, what if I'm wrong? And I, what if I'm wrong about hell? And then I end up there and mm-hmm. find out I'm wrong. I've never had those thoughts because the goodness of God and his being love, the necessity of that came 
was was always there. Like that was the thing I was pursuing, the thing I wanted to believe and the thing I was eventually able to believe again. So I never feared him. I just knew because my heart was honest. That's why I had like, I had no fear because I wasn't being bitter. I wasn't being angry. I wasn't in this to just find an answer. Like someone said, are you sure you're not putting a bandaid on your emotions? Essentially was what they said. And I was like thinking that is the one thing I've really avoided. Like if anything, (laughs) I felt a little bit offended because I'm like, but I understand the question. Like it's easy for us to seek answers that will make us feel better. But I was aware of that. And that's never been my intention. I wanted to believe the truth, even if it was awful. But this was really what made a lot of things fall together. Um, in my in my recent most recent interview with David Bentley Hart, he he stressed how important it is to pay attention to our moral intuitions about uh, about goodness and what corresponds with goodness and love, mm-hmm. and to really take that uh, to to take those intuitions very seriously and to let them play a major role in our thinking and in uh, we've we've been talking about a lot of issues and uh, and there we haven't even gotten to everything that you sent me that you're interested in thinking about. So maybe we'll do another and an, we'll can continue the conversation another time sometime. But there was one issue that that you listed that became very important for you, and you said foreknowledge and moral responsibility. And you just made a note: if so many people are tortured in agony for eternity. Why did God even create the world knowing that would happen to many of his beloved creatures? So that really is a big deal. Once you're starting to ask, is God good? And then you ask the question, of, oh, okay, well, God, if God does have foreknowledge, if God is all-knowing, then why would God create a situation knowing that these terrible things are going to happen and never going to be resolved? Mm-hmm. So tell me how, tell me some a little bit about your how you, how you started asking those kinds of questions and thinking through those issues. Um yeah, that was a that was a big question a little bit later. Um but I yeah, I went back to and and again, I was very like humble to kind of ask God that cuz you're asking God why he does stuff and that's kind of a big question. Like we can't understand a lot of that. Yeah. Um but I like Dan's point about his ways are higher than ours. That, that chapter is actually focusing on God's love. That's why it says God's ways are higher than ours cuz Israel's like you shouldn't include all these pagans and you know your goodness and God's like, "Well, watch me. I will." <laughs> um <laughs> and yeah, that was a big question and I, I I it's funny if I could like repeat my words that I probably said in those prayers of like asking God those questions. I'm like, can I just ask you like respectfully and maybe I can't understand this, but maybe you can help me understand like, yeah, if he, before anything was really created, before he created Adam, before he created people, if he knew the outcome, yeah, like why would he go with that? Because it's like, I don't know. It's got to be less than a quarter. It's it's a small part of humanity that will be saved in the end, um, most likely according to the traditional view. So that's like a net loss on God's end, um, knowing that Adam would screw it all up. And that was a big thing too. Is like if Adam's failure was enough to automatically condemn humanity in some way, or automatically pass that brokenness, like into human history ever forever in the future if it was that powerful it seemed to me that jesus's sacrifice needed to be that powerful or more 
um, or it didn't make sense. That was a big linchpin for me. So it's kind of related to that question you started with. I went off a little track there, but yeah, like why would he have done this in the first place unless he knew that he had a plan to fix it? Um, And that to me is very also comforting to think of. I, I can't explain. Suffering is still a question. If anyone still has that bouncing around in their mind that's listening, it's hard right. to explain why all the suffering, why this kind of world, why did God even create this kind of world? Because yes, that's great if he saves everyone in the end, but we're still going through hell on earth in a lot of ways. Many people are. Many people right. have gone through unthinkable things. That is still a huge question for me, um, and but one that I have a lot more peace with, and it definitely is is very helpful if the only thing I ever know is, well, God makes it right in the end. Um, And it just seemed to me like, yeah, if Adam's mess up was so powerful, it seemed very weak and very sad (laughs) and very unexpected that God himself, his plan for salvation, would only accomplish fixing a fraction of that mess that occurred from Adam's failure. So at Jesus... Jesus' sacrifice needing to be bigger and better than Adam's failure made a lot of sense. And yeah, why would we be dealt, we're dealt that hand, like the hand that Adam gave us, we're dealt it by default from birth. So even if you want to, you know, argue that our choices are free will, we do deserve judgment. And I can still affirm that, that like the choices that we make deserve something, deserve a kind of punishment. Um, we're still dealt that hand to begin with, so we never had a chance to not be that, did not be messed up. We never had a chance to be dealt a different hand or to choose a different hand. We were given the hand we were given. And if God can let something automatically be applied to us, why could he not let Jesus' sacrifice automatically reconcile us? Um, now, faith is when we choose to walk in that reconciliation. So, we don't need to go down that rabbit trail of what does it mean for everyone to be saved? Is it now? Is it later? I think we need to participate in what God has done for us. And I think that's where a lot of the language of the Bible comes from is that we are asked to participate. That requires dedication. It requires fellowship. It requires hard decisions to be made. It requires us to examine our hearts, to read scripture, to pray, to be a part of a community, to listen to what the church and our leaders have to say, to be willing to be corrected and have the log taken out of our eye before we correct each other's specs. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely, it takes participation. That's what faith is. I think it's our participation in what God has done for us. But what he's done for us, he's done for us. But that's literally what it means. Like, he has done it for us, and there's nothing more we can add to it except to increase his joy in that we want to follow and love Jesus Christ with our lives on this earth. Um And another thing that all of this has really increased, two important things I want to mention, because I've heard other people say this, and every time I'm like, yes, they understand, is one, (laughs) there's, like I said earlier, there's less of an you're in or you're out. So now all of humanity, I feel like, is with me in this one boat. I don't feel like I'm the person who knows that needs to go tell those person, those people who don't know. That is kind of true. I want to bring them the information of Jesus Christ and what he's done almost more than ever before. But right. but all of humanity is kind of in the same boat of like we're all equally loved and pursued by God, and he knows our end in a good well, way. It gets, well, oh. the good news, yeah, the, the good news then kind of gets back <clears throat> to more the kind of announcement that Jesus made, that I have good news that the kingdom of God is here and now, 
and that you can yes. begin to live in fullness of life right now. So to me, that's a, that's a really good, that's a really good gospel to share mm-hmm. with anybody. And I like doing that. And, and so well, what's the problem with not doing that? Well, if you don't do that, then you're going to, you're going to be walking down this wide path that leads to destruction. Mm-hmm. And it, it just gets, it just gets harder and harder in this life. And then after you die, it continues to get harder and harder, you know, then, until finally there's a point at which your eyes will come open. And, um, but if, if, if you can, the earlier you can open your eyes or get your eyes open and, and see the, the path of destruction that you're on, and the sooner that you can see that Jesus is about the fullness of life and that you don't really have to wait to go to heaven, you can have heaven right now. You can begin to live in all of that. And then once you add on to that, then the confidence that God had a good end planned for everybody from the beginning, then you can be with people. And, but you, you sort of don't, don't have the weight of the whole world on your shoulders. Like if I mess up this ministry, if I mess up this witnessing moment, this person is going to go to hell forever. So just like you're, you're just more free to be with them and sort of be in the moment, not have to cover every single thing. Yes. Yeah. All at once in every conversation. Yes. Cause you're not focused on like Jesus wasn't, if you look through the gospels, like he wasn't focused on, here's this nugget of information that they need. I need to make sure they get this nugget so they can be saved in this moment, you know, cause they need to believe the right thing. It's about knowing him and following him. And so, yeah, the weight of that needing to get people to a certain place is just gone. Even though I tried really hard, I knew that wasn't my weight to carry all these years. I knew it. I knew that was God's weight. And yet I continued to feel it because you can't help it in a way. It's like, yeah, it was so hard. And now, like I said, there's no in and there's no out. There's all of us walking. Some people way off this other way direction more than others. Some people mm-hmm. headed kind of towards Jesus. Some people don't know the name of Jesus, but they're living out kingdom principles, which is incredible. And you can affirm that in them and try to you know tell them who that kind of originated with. But yeah, that weight is gone. My empathy has increased so much. My desire to talk to people about what I believe, and I'm a lot less self-assured about what I believe in a lot of ways. So it's given me a lot of a lot more humility, I hope, in the conversations that I have with people. It's made talking about it much more easy because I don't feel like someone who's trying to sell something. It's like somebody who has really struggled, who has really wondered what to believe, and this is like the best answer I've found yet, and I just want to share that with people. So I've had people ask me, well, what's the point of sharing the gospel? What's the point of all of this? Which my recently became a Christian best friend. It was like just a few years ago, she became a believer from being an atheist. And uh, she was shocked that a Christian asked me that. She was like, that's what they said to you? Like, what's the point (laughs) of all of it? What do you mean? What's the point of all of it? And I was like, and she's not like me, like deep thinker has always thought through these things. She kind of just goes along and just like loves Jesus. And I was very like amused that at her reaction, (laughs) she was so shocked that was asked because I thought she, she really found the crux of the issue. It's like, if we think just because this moment of belief isn't there, or if Jesus is going to rescue everyone, what's the point of it all? I think we've missed the point already because knowing him should be something that's beautiful, you know? And something that we naturally want to share with others because it's so good. And that's like something I'm still trying to regain in some ways because 
it has been a really hard, long journey. And I still have, I struggle with sometimes being frustrated with differences. And I, I can't convince people of like what I think. It's a very, right. it took me a solid year of thinking about it since right. I, you know, I heard Robin Perry and it was a year later after thinking like a lot and listening and reading a lot that mm-hmm. I was able to change my mind. So, so it is sometimes hard. It's very hard sometimes having these conversations with. And then once you, once you bit. see it, it's hard to unsee it and yep. everything and everything clicks together in so many different ways that it's hard to just um, uh, communicate all of that to, yeah. to somebody else in, in one setting, especially if they're, if they're not, if they're feeling good about where they are mm-hmm. and um, well, I want to thank you for um, taking a good amount of time this morning. I know that you have some other things that you have to, to get to. Um, but I think that people listening to this, listening to your story can tell that you're a genuinely faithful Christian person who has really honestly uh, worked through all of these issues and that you have not, I mean, anybody that would listen to you and say, well, that young lady has left the Christian life, Christian, her Christian faith behind. Um, I think you have a vibrant Christian faith. You seem to be more interested and connected with Jesus. You seem to be more at ease in your spirit and loving and excited about your faith. I would say that you're, uh, that you no longer ever look at your dog and think, I wish I was just like my dog. That you're actually, you know, you're actually happy to be alive. You're thriving. You have a good positive to believe, belief. And even if everybody, even if other Christians may not understand you, other people don't understand you, you've got a light with inside you and a hope that I think is going to carry you through your whole life. And I hope that people will listen to this podcast, listen to this, to listen to your story, and it will give them the space to realize that maybe they can go down this path and and they can think about some of these things too. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope to, I I love to give people the space to talk about what they think, no matter how wacky. So (laughs) that I feel like this isn't that wacky coming from like, it is a small difference in some ways I like to think from, from what I grew up believing, but yeah, I hope people feel the freedom to, there's nothing no matter how crazy it is, no matter what you're thinking, it's this or something else that seems even crazier. Like it is worth talking about with people that are willing to listen um, and just be intellectually honest. And that's what I always strive to do is like have humility. First of all, I heard somebody use the phrase epistemological humility, which I really Mm -hmm. like that. Um, That's a great, great thing to shoot for. And then just have honesty about what you're thinking. And sometimes all it takes is for your, us to say things out loud and we realize, oh, yeah, that doesn't work. Or, oh, yeah, this is making a lot of sense. And just talk it through with other people and use resources yeah, like this and other podcasts where people are having good conversations. And I would just say, yeah, value humility and honesty above everything else. But, yeah, I hope people that are listening are encouraged and don't hear me as somebody who's like, yeah, I've got these things figured out or – you know, I've just like drunk the Kool-Aid and jumped in some other boat. Like it's been a very long, um, thoughtful process. I'm always willing to hear more, you know, push back and continue the conversation in lots of different areas. I just love to talk and communicate about ideas. So yeah. So thanks. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Rebecca, for your time. And maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to talk again in the future. If you have more ideas that are bouncing around in your head, yeah. that just need to get out there. Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> okay. Talk to you later. Thanks.
Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.